So again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And if you're using one of these black Bibles, it's on page 240. Alrighty, so we'll be reading from verse 31 all the way to 40. Alrighty. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You were not able to go against this Philistine to fight for it with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go in these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling, with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. It's nice to be in Guelph on this wonderfully sunny day. I know you all want to be outside, but we're inside. Uh, We're going to be learning from uh, the Word of God, which is the Bible. We're we're reading again from uh, 1 Samuel 17. Uh, Matt started a new series last week uh, on the life of David and and a lot of the things that the church, us personally, as, as a group, can learn uh, from this life and this man's reliance on God. But as we all know, like all of us, there are ups and downs. Um, we, uh, we're reading the famous story of uh, David and Goliath. And, you know, if you've been part of a church for a long time, you've probably heard the, the story at Sunday school. Um, you've probably, you know, watched a movie on it or cartoons on it. Uh, if you're like me and being part of a church is new to you, uh, you've probably heard uh, about David and Goliath, something about the story. A lot of people actually believe the whole idea of an underdog sort of came from this story, right? Uh, as the story goes, you have this giant in Goliath, and, and you have this, as, um, as Matt put it last week, like the runt of the litter type of thing in David. Um, you can clearly see that one has an advantage over the other, therefore the underdog. And, and our culture as a whole, like we have a fascination about underdogs, right? Um, Matt didn't watch Avengers Endgame. I did. I can't believe that he hasn't, but let us not judge your brother today. Um, when I, when I think of a modern depiction of Goliath, I think of Thanos, right? He was this big titan wanting to end half of all of civilization. He had this great armor and the final thing being the gauntlet in and of itself. 
Um, we have a very similar story of these, these Avengers coming together, uh, fairly unmatched with all of the armor that Thanos had. Um, and I'm not going to spoil anything, even though I could. The good guys win. Um, the, the underdog wins. And there seems to be a fascination about that within our culture. We love movies where the, you know, the uh, insignificant guy overcomes the, you know, the guy that has it all together, big and strong. Um, we even see this in sports. I don't know if you've been alive for the past couple of months, but the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship. Um, it surprises me that there are people that don't know about this, <laughs> that live close to Toronto. Um, but again, another instance where like every, every series in the playoffs, everyone said Toronto is not good enough. We have one good player, everyone else is bad. Therefore, we're not going to win. But we love this underdog winning, winning and winning, and ultimately getting the big prize. I do not want to talk about Kawhi Leonard today. Um, so don't approach me about that. I'm just looking at the positives right now. Uh, w- w- when we get into this story, uh, Matt left off last week with you know, David being anointed as this new king, an unlikely king, a king that God chose right? Uh, there is a big deal um, when, we see the, when we, we see chapter 16 of 1 Samuel about, you know, Samuel's expectations of what this new king is supposed to be like. And the eldest brother being tall, handsome, and, you know, strong, that was the ideal king as far as Samuel was concerned. But no, God, God ended up choosing David. Um, and we enter uh, 1 Samuel 17 with this big war going on. And, you know, if we, if we take both of these verses in isolation, it's like, what's going on? We just anointed a new uh, king, and now there's this big war. There is some context to this. So um, they, they met for war at the Valley of Elah. I have a picture of what the Valley of Elah looks like nowadays. Um, and then you have these pointers to where all of these, uh, where all the, the different armies were, and where the middle of the path was, where they likely fought. So you have Saul, Saul's camp, which is the Israelites up there, and on the other mountain on the other side, you have the Philistine camp. What's important to acknowledge here is that the armies, because they were on two different hills or two different mountains, as it says here, they could actually see each other. So when, when, when the people of Israel and the armies of Israel saw Goliath, they could actually see all of him. They could see him very clearly. They could hear what he was saying. They were likely shouting at each other from both sides. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, noticed rallies like this. I I, I went to a boarding school, and whenever my boarding school was in a soccer game against another boarding school, we had our set of fans on one side and the other school set of fans on the other side, and we just kept chanting at one another, we're the greatest, and you are terrible, and you're going to lose. It usually went along those lines, not those exact <laughs> words. Um, but you, you sort of get the context that like, you, you could see both the armies there. Why were they at war? Now, this actually makes us go back a while. Um, we went through the book of Exodus, I think, a few years ago, and it actually goes back all the way there. Uh, I'm reading from Exodus uh, chapter 33, verses 1 and 2. 
Um, and this is something that the Lord said to Moses, who was the great leader of the time at that point. So it says, the Lord said to Moses, depart and go from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. And this is the important verse here too. It says, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jezubites. So God promises this land to this kingdom of Israel, Moses being its leader. Their job going into this land was to trust God that he had their backs and go and fight all of these larger, greater armies. But over and over again, as you read the story, as it leads up to where we are now, we see a lot of disobedience from, from the people of God, the Israelites. A lot, of, a, a lot of situations where they would go into war and not fully obey God and what God asked them to do. One of the biggest reasons we, we learned last week that the Spirit of God left Saul, um, and then we read that the Spirit of, a, of God was on David, part of the reason for that was Saul disobeyed God even in some of the conquests that he had. The reason why they have an enemy in front of them today, or at this point in the story, is because the Israelites over and over again, in spite of the fact that God promises his angels to go before them, continued to disobey God. And this is where we sort of enter the story here. Uh, I'm going to read from uh, 1 Samuel 17 from verse 1. Uh, so if you guys want to go there, that would be great. Just follow along and be giving somewhat of a commentary in between. But what I'd like to draw out of the story uh, today are three things. One, one that we find and we need to acknowledge the reality of our situations. And two, we need to know what and who our identity is in. And thirdly, that we need to trust the Lord. Um, there's going to be some application at the end, but that's generally where I'm going. So let's read from verse 1. So it starts off, Now the Philistines gathered their armies, uh, so on the hill on that side, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in the Ephraim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley in between them. And, the, and there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, who was six cubits and a span. So pause there for a second. Translation, if we were to directly you know, convert the measurements, he was nine feet, nine inches tall. Okay, if these measurements are accurate, and there's a lot of debate back and forth about whether these measurements are accurate or not, regardless, the point of it was he was a big guy. So imagine that hoop being where the crown of his head would be, right? And I'm not bragging, David would have probably been my height, okay? Before you make fun of my height, I will let you know I am exactly average where I come from. Um, so there is, there is a sizable difference between this Philistine and the average Israelite that they were seeing on the other side of the camp. And they saw all of him. He was mighty, he was, he was tall, he was strong, and they saw all of it. 
And in response to that, uh, it, we go on to read, um, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his leg, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was where the weaver's, was like a weaver's beam, and his spear head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and the shield bearer went before him. It continues, he stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man of yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together, that we may fight together. And when Saul and all the Israelites heard these things of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly terrified. Now David was the son of Ephraim of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the day of Saul, the man who was already old and advanced in years, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. So we learned last week that, you know, David had brothers, all of them were older. Three of the brothers were with Saul in battle. If you remember, one of the consequences uh, that you would have if you had a monarch of a king was that the monarch could, depend, could demand your sons to go into battle with him. Right? That, that was one of the things that Samuel warned the Israelites when they asked for a king. Uh, you could, one of the consequences of having a king is you could lose your sons. Uh, but they still wanted a king. So this was one of the things that happens because of that. Uh, David was the youngest, three of the eldest of Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his hand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an epah of this parched grain and take 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. So a gift for them, but also a gift for the commander. Uh, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistine. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle, to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the thing in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, a champion of the Philistines, Goliath of Gath, came by name and came out of the Philistines and spoke the same words as he did before, and David heard him. All of the men of Israel, when they saw this man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make this man who killed, uh, and, and free his father's household in Israel. So what does this mean here? Saul has put up this reward for anyone who has the guts to go up against this Philistine. 
And let's break down the reward a little. You get a lot of money. You get the king's daughter in marriage, which is a big deal. You're part of the royal family now. And now your entire family would not have to do the things that regular people would have to do for the, for the monarch, whether it be taxes, whether it be sending their children to war. They wouldn't have to do any of that. That was the great reward for whoever would go up against and defeat Goliath. And, and David, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And I want to pause there for a little bit. In the beginning of the story, as we read, I see two parties here. You see the Israelites, Saul, um, and you see David. And they're looking at their realities very differently, right? You have Saul and the armies of Israel looking at this Goliath, defying them, and saying, bring out one champion. He's this big, tall, strong guy. And what Saul and the armies of Israel see is this big, strong guy. They see the physical reality that they have in front of them. David, being the runt of his little set of brothers, he sees something very different. He sees a man defying the armies of the living God. What is the difference here? The difference is what the people see is they see who they are and what they have, and they see this big armored guy and say there's no way we can defeat him. There's no one here in our camp that can defeat him. But what are they forgetting? As we look back in Exodus, God promised to go before them the entire time. So what David sees in the situation is who is this guy that's defying God? He must have a lot of guts to defy God. That's what David sees. He sees a completely different reality in the situation. And from this, we actually acknowledge that David finds his identity differently than the armies of Saul and Israel do. I'll continue reading here. Uh, in verse 28, it says, Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, uh, when he spoke to the men, and Eliab ang- was angry and kindred against David and said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumptions and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So last week we, we got the sense that there was some sibling rivalry going on. This is it coming into fruition. He's trying to discourage David and saying like, who do you think you are? You're coming here and telling us what to do. You're a little shepherd guy. Who's taking care of your sheep? Mind you, Eliab's ego is probably really bruised at this point. He, was a, he wasn't the chosen one. He wasn't going to be the next king, but the youngest brother gets this opportunity. Come on. In verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before them and Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, 
you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And again, we see another example of two different realities being grasped with the same situation. Saul again looks at the physical, looks at this young guy, has no experience in war, and says, who, like, what do you, like, do you want to die? You have never fought before. This guy has been fighting since he was your age. And Goliath was a trained military man. He had all of these plates of armor because he had earned them, right? Um, And again, all Saul could see was the physical. But how does David respond? David responds in verse 34, it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose again at me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be one of them. For he has defied, defied again what? The armies of God. And the paw of the bear will deliver, the, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David found his identity not on what he had physically, but who his God was. Now, whether you are a believer in God, whether you believe there is a God, whether you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, what's what's happening in this story is David had this relationship with God. He, He got confirmed as being the anointed next leader of this people. And if God is who he says he is in the Bible, this mighty, majestic God that has all the power, has all the resources, why wouldn't David rely on this God? And why wouldn't you fear to defy this God? It doesn't matter who you are. He didn't care about his own appearance. He had the skill of fighting these bears off, but that's nothing compared to fighting a man that is trained in the art of warfare. But he acknowledged, he found his identity in a God that rescued him from the bear, from the lion, and he will do it again against this Philistine. That is where David found his identity. Not just in the physical appearance or not in just the surface level appearance of the situation. He acknowledged who his God was. If you're part of a missional community and you go to your DNAs, um, when you read a passage of scripture, there are a couple of questions that we sort of teach teach each other to ask in these situations. The first one being, who is God? What is his character like and what is he doing? Why is this important? And I think we see this resonate in the life of David. I'm reading from a commentary by Paul Evans um, in in David finding his identity in God. It says, David's faith-filled theological perspective allowed him a different vantage point on the grave situation at the Valley of Elah. While the other Israelites cowered from the threats of the mighty Goliath, David instead saw things from, from a theological perspective wherein Goliath, by defying the armies of Israel, 
was actually defying the armies of the living God. While Saul and the Israelites were terrified by Goliath's size, David instead saw his vulnerability. What is theology? In its bare bones, theology is the study of who God is. And the Bible gives us ample examples of who this God is. And when we read our scriptures, as we disciple one another in our DNAs, it's, it's amazing that we start off there about who God is because that changes everything, right? Because what are the other questions that we ask? Who are we and how do we live based on who God is and what he does? This is how David starts off. He's not starting off by looking at the physical and then going to God. He's acknowledging who God is and then looking at the physical reality. Who is this guy to defy the armies of God? And think about it, when we face our Goliaths, when we face our struggles, do we do this? We should. Because that's where identity is. Our identity is not on our own strength. It's not on our posture, the way we look, the, just based on the gifts that we have, even though God can use that, and we'll see that here. All of it is based on who God is. The third point we see here is that David trusts in God. So I'm going to be reading again from verses 38 onwards to the end. And it says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. Uh, Sorry, I'm reading from verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And the Philistine Philistine looked and saw David He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Again, Goliath also sees the physical. He sees a short, young guy. Right before this, we see Saul gives David all of his armor. Um... uh, different studies on this chapter have shown that the the Philistines at this point had better armor, better technology than the Israelites did. But since David was taking the steps, Saul gave him all that he had, the best of what he had. And David rejected all of it, saying, I'm not used to fighting like this, so keep your stuff. I'm going to continue relying on God. Again, what Goliath also sees is the physical reality. He sees David for who he is. Am I a dog that you come to me with these sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. It's David's time to respond. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Over, over and over again, we see David acknowledge the reality for what it is, root his identity in who God is, and move forward in his action. And we see this again here. He continues to say, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
that's pretty bold. If I were looking at someone that big, I don't know if I would have the necessary courage to do that. But he does this. He's looking up at this guy and saying, I'm going to cut your head off. That's what I'm going to do today. You weren't planning for this, and you clearly don't think it's going to happen, but that's what's going to happen. And I will strike you down, cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Why? The Israelites have forgotten that there is a God in Israel. Saul has clearly forgotten that there is a God in Israel. But when we find and acknowledge the true reality, find our identity in God and trust him, you know God is with you. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord God saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David puts his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Wow. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed and cut off his head with it. <laughs> he took his own sword and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw this, their champion was dead. They fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose, now they rise, and shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. I find it interesting that they go all the way to Gath because Goliath is actually from Gath. So they go all the way to Goliath's hometown, drove them all the way back there um, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but put his armor on his tent. What happens after? As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Again, David at this point was a nobody. Nobody knew him, not even the king. Even though they had a conversation, Saul didn't bother to even know where he came from. He was pretty sure David was going to die, and he was going to let it happen. But now he wants to know. And Abner responds and says, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And the son of David, as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. I'm just a shepherd boy. What was different about the shepherd boy? He acknowledged the true reality of what was going on. He knew where his identity was and who his God was. And therefore, trusting God took down a giant. You know, um, as, we, as we think of this story in our lives today, we, uh, 
We approach it in many different ways. There's been a lot of social commentary into the subject um, of David and Goliath. Malcolm Gladwell, who's a famous podcaster, journalist, he actually wrote an entire book on David and Goliath. Um, I got to read some of that. There was another book I got to read as a social commentary on the subject called David's Secret Demons. And they have a different take on the story, not it being an underdog story. They actually see David as having an advantage against Goliath. And let's just like look at the story for what it is. You have this big giant that had heavy armor on, and you have this light, nimble young guy that was David who had a sling. Now, if you were fighting somebody and he was coming at you from far away and you had the advantage of striking him down, like say you had a gun and he's coming with a sword, you have the advantage at that point. So a lot of these commentaries, what uh, Cole Halpern says in this situation is, David breaks the rule of combat in sneaking a sling into the battlefield against Goliath by distracting him with his staff. A tactic some have categorized as a below-the-belt sucker punch, a man with a howitzer, which I believe is like a machine gun, mowing down a peasant with a pitchfork. And um, Malcolm Gladwell also adds to the story saying that, you know, David was not really the underdog here. He was at the advantage because he had this range, right? And that's nice. I, I actually... I actually agree with them to a certain extent. I think it still took a lot of courage for David to approach the giant, but again, he remembered where his identity was from. He trusted in his God. I actually don't think David thought that he was the underdog here. If you read all of, all of what it says in this chapter and over and over again, it's never about David here. David is saying he's defying God. This is easy pickings for me if I have to go and do this. He is defying the living God and his armies. Therefore, God is going to go with me, and I am going to slay this giant. David and Goliath has been the classic, you know, origin story of this underdog. But I, again, I don't think David actually saw himself as the underdog here. What does this mean for us today as we read the story? we probably don't have a nine feet, nine inch giant in front of us threatening to kill us. But we have our own realities, right? Uh, We see a lot of uh, hurt and suffering in our own lives. It could be a health issue. It could be a financial issue. You know, in my life, I think uh, something that I'm still going through today was the death of my father. And um, I know some of you know that my father passed away, but I don't know that a lot of you know that I was actually there in the car when he passed away. Um, we were on our way to the hospital, but before we could get there, he actually died. I got to be with him while he was dying, and he was not alone, and that was a blessing for me. But that was a giant in front of me at the time. And when we're confronted with these realities, very much like the Israelites and David, we can grasp the reality very differently. We can look at our struggling marriages, we can look at our addictions and say, there is no way I can overcome this. 
there's no way that I and my strength can do anything to better the situation. And sometimes we give up. Or we can grasp the situation differently. If you are a follower of Jesus sitting here today, I want you to know that God is the living God. He's not dead. And if he is who he says he is, he has the power to go with you and overcome everything that you're going through. If you're not a believer in Jesus yet, this is the promise that we have. And I'll get into that a bit later. When, 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 when my father was in the car, I remember in my heart there was a song that I believe God gave me at the time a song that I used to sing way back in the day in boarding school where I didn't really understand the words. I, I hadn't sung it ever since then. And it goes like, Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I understood at that point, I have the choice of looking at this reality and saying this is impossible. How can my father die? What have you done, God? But the song that he put in my heart was, I've got you. I am the solid rock you stand. Not your dad, not your mom, not your situation, not your bank account, not your marriage, nothing. I am the solid rock that you stand on. Everything else around you is sinking sand. God came through for me. We also need to remember, as followers of Jesus, where we find our identity. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The first few promises here, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, this is the same promise that God had for the Israelites. Yet they actually forgot this identity. David didn't. They all did. And sometimes we do too. Again, we look at our situations and we think, I'm done, I give up. But where is your identity? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, your identity is no longer on what you just see physically, even though God has gifted you in so many ways. He is the strength in your weakness, as Paul says. That's where you draw your confidence from, not just yourself. David could have been the most cocky guy in this situation, going up against a giant and saying, I'm gonna cut your head off. But he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't find his confidence in his own strength. He found his confidence in who his God was. And his God's promise was, if you go up against these armies, my angels will be before you, they'll be done. No matter how, much, how, how many of them there are, no matter what like, weapons they have, it doesn't matter. When we look at the circumstances in front of us today and we believe in a living God, we have to look at these things differently. We have to put our trust in Jesus. Now, I, I, I could have kind of painted a picture here where, where I've told you, like, you know, if you trust in God, he's got your back, everything will be good. That's not necessarily true. In my life, my, my dad actually passed away. 
I did pray that God would bring him back to life, but God didn't, right? But what does Jesus say in spite of this? In John 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you will have peace. And he continues to say, this is important. In the world you will have tribulations, you will have difficulties, you will have suffering, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When we confront, when we look at the story of David and Goliath, I think we make one mistake. We kind of think of ourselves as David, and we do this with like stories of heroes all the time. We think of ourselves as like, you know, what, we, what would we do in David's situation, or like, if I were Iron Man and I had all of these suits, what would I do? Um, but I think we make a fatal flaw in relating to David in this situation. I believe we as the church sometimes act like the Israelite armies. And for a long time in human history, we needed a representative to not just take on one Goliath, but all of our Goliaths, the Goliaths of this whole world, our sin, our brokenness. And our representative, the better David for us, is actually Jesus Christ. And what he says about himself is, you will go through suffering as a follower of Jesus. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He has defeated all of your Goliaths. And this is a great hope for the Christian, and this is a great hope for those of us that are journeying, that are trying to figure out, you know, who is Christ. We're glad that you're with us here today. But know that this is the promise of Jesus, that he is with us, He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He died on the cross um, so that when we confront our sin, we can claim his sacrifice and completely wipe all of our sins clean. We are made righteous. We've come from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And that is what Jesus invites all of us into. And he doesn't let us do this on our own. Jesus actually says um, in the beginning of chapter 16, before he talks about overcoming the world, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It was to our advantage that he died because he needed to be the final sacrifice for us. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who is this helper? The helper is the spirit of God. Prior to this, uh, in, in, in chapter 16, we see the Spirit of God leave Saul and go to David. So again, David's confidence comes from the fact that he was the anointed by God, not his own strength, not in his ability to, you know, this is not a bear or a lion, this is a giant facing him. His courage came from the fact that he was anointed by God. And here's the reality for the church today. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have repented for your sins, you have the Holy Spirit in you. So when you face your challenges, when you face your Goliaths, you don't do it on your own. You're never on your own. Does it mean that it won't be hard? No. It means the hardness has already been defeated by Jesus, and therefore our identity is not found in our hardship. It's found in what Jesus has already done. In communion, I'm going to ask the band and the ushers to come forward for communion. This is specifically what we celebrate as followers of Jesus. 
We are a powerful people. We may not look like it. We might be the runts in our families, but God has specifically chosen you guys to be his church and to be a powerful people. What does it mean for for our church? It means that when we seek to do good in this community, we do not do it on our own. When our missional communities want to be missional and we're thinking there's no way, there's no way like we can do anything here. It's too hopeless. Take heart for Jesus has already overcome it. Go with his strength. Move forward with his strength. In, in communion, we celebrate the, the death of Christ, and it, it's, if, if you look at it from an outsider's perspective, that's kind of morbid. We're celebrating a death. We are celebrating a death because it's because it is because of this death that we're all sitting here today in confidence in what Christ has done for us. His body and his blood were broken so that we might have life, not only in the life to come, because we're saved from death too, but in this life, we have power because of him. So we're going to take up communion uh, together today. So the elements are going to be passed around. And then I'm going to come back up and we're going to take it together.